Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What do you do when you have a loved one who struggles with mental health or addiction issues? What I can recommend to you is you give us a call at Cash Centers. We're in network with most insurance providers. We're also out of network with a bunch of insurance providers. And even if your loved one or you is not appropriate for us, we will make a recommendation in your local city or hometown with the extensive resources that we have. So go to castcenters.com. That's C-A-S-T, centers.com. Check us out, give us a call, and we'll help you find the right resources. All right, we are back at Always Evolving, where we're always evolving, and I have a special guest today who is a therapist and who specializes in something that you may or may not have heard about called borderline personality disorder. Uh, She runs an outpatient center, uh, multiple outpatient centers, uh, is very popular in terms of treating this disorder. And she also deals with people who are suicidal. So Suzanne, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Suzanne Wallach. Yes. And part of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today was, uh, and I was showing my staff this at CAST, was when you look on YouTube, the term borderline personality disorder, you have these people who are describing what it is. And a lot of these people I'm watching on the video and I'm like, I don't even think they've worked or healed or treated people with borderline. It just seems like they're reading off the DSM. It's very, there's a lot of misinformation because anyone can say, I'm a psychologist. This is what I do. This is who I treat. Yes. (laughs) So I thought it'd be really helpful to have you talk about it. Okay. I'm happy to answer any questions you have. Yes. It's definitely trending right now. It is. Yes. Why is that? I'm not sure, but I definitely have noticed that it's trending on TikTok. There's a lot of videos. It's trending on YouTube. And I have a lot of people coming in self-diagnosing because of the internet. And so what is borderline personality disorder? Borderline personality disorder is a cluster B disorder where people are experiencing um, intense mood swings. They often have black and white thinking, so they can idealize and devalue things and people. So people are either all good or all bad. You can be their best friend one day, and then if you do something to hurt them, they might hate you two hours later. Often engaged in a high-risk behavior, such as like drugs and alcohol, high-risk sex, gambling, drinking. Um, You often see a pattern of unstable relationships. So a lot of like fighting or Um, emotionally cutting off of people and people get mad. I think like the biggest, the biggest symptom to me when I'm evaluating someone is the inability to tolerate distress Mm. or regulate their emotions. 
So, and there's a whole spectrum because I think when people think of BPD, they sort of think of like Glenn Close and Fatal Attraction. I don't know how many people remember that movie. I'm <laughs> aging myself here, but, or they, you know, they think of somebody, it's really over pathologized and they think of somebody that's like really out of control and, you know, like invasive and and can't control their emotions, but there's really a spectrum. And there's also people who are more like internally borderline where they're very apparently competent out in the world, but their mm. like inner lives are complete chaos. So really it's when you look at a common trait of everyone with borderline personality disorder, it's a inability to regulate their own emotions mm-hmm. or they have a extreme reaction to maybe things that they should emotionally be able to resolve. Things that most people would be able to resolve. So they also have like an incredibly intense fear of abandonment mm. and perceptions can be off. So oftentimes like they can perceive abandonment or criticism when that's not what the other person is meaning mm. to do. Um, and then you often also see like high rates of suicide and self-harming. So burning and cutting and things like that. I feel like sometimes in relationships, like loving really, and I don't know, I think if I were to say, okay, I had, because I think everyone at some level goes, okay, there's moments in life where I have borderline traits. Everyone does. Everyone does, <laughs> right? Everyone does, yeah. Just like everyone at some point maybe drank too much and qualified as substance abuse, sure. right? Mm-hmm. But I, I notice that, and at least for myself, in very intimate relationships, kind of the the qualities of that could come out more than business and life. Is that yeah. just humanity or how do you? Well, I think it depends on how you look at it. I mean, I think when we're in relationships with intimate partners, oftentimes we're reliving a lot of our childhood and family trauma. Mm. (laughs) So the people that we're in romantic relationships with or really close friendships with and things like that are going to be able to press our buttons more than other people. I think that, I mean, obviously like my husband can press my buttons a lot more than one of my employees. Right. 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 And he's also just like my dad. So (laughs) I think there's, there's that. So I, yeah, I do think it comes out more and you often see it more in romantic partner relationships. Because doesn't everyone kind of have a fear of abandonment to some degree? I don't know. I think that's a really good question. I don't think everyone has a fear of abandonment. I do think there are people out there that can go through breakups and things like that, and and they sort of are able to manage them and know that they'll be okay. Mm. I don't think anyone wants to be alone, but I don't think everybody has the same fear of being abandoned. I mean, in my DBT training, Marshall Linehan, who developed DBT, said you can only be abandoned if you're a baby or a puppy. Mm. And that no one can really abandon you if you're an adult because you're self-sufficient. You can take care of yourself. So right. you cannot be abandoned if you're that and I always that always kind of stuck with me. Mm. That it's a perception that you're being abandoned. You can't really be abandoned. Yeah, and I suppose we get abandonment confused with like disappointment or frustration. And sometimes the words we use aren't actually rejection. Right. Right. Someone not wanting us. Oh, they're abandoning us. No, we just. No, they just don't want to date you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I actually, the, the, I had Mark Leary, who's a expert on rejection. Oh. Um, He's like a psychologist and, He's, uh, his episode's coming out, I think this week, and he was talking about all he studies is rejection for the past 40 years. That's so interesting. Yeah, I should connect you with him. He's yeah. really cool, has written so many academic papers, but he talked about how rejection, the pain, the reason why we say it hurts, like, oh my God, like it really hurts to feel rejected is because it hits the same part of the brain as physical pain. 
and it hits that same exact like the lights go on and the MRI studies and all that or brain scans and oh that's fascinating yeah so it's really interesting that like we have this primal instinct of like oh that hurts and it because back when it protected us we wanted to be a part of a tribe right we needed people to accept and love us but as adults it's not that serious and yet we're feeling this pain and then I suppose someone who has borderline personality disorder, that pain becomes overly intense. Overly intense. And so, you know, I always think of borderline personality disorder because it's so overpathologized now. It's, I, I tell my patients, it's, it's just attachment trauma. That's what it is, right? And so oftentimes you have these people that were in invalidating environments in their childhood, mm. um, whatever that might be. For some people, it might be a really, really abusive home. And for other people, it may be, you know, their school experience. It's all sort of subjective. But what happens is that they they feel their feelings so much more intensely than people who don't have this disorder. And so it feels really out of control. And then they want to get rid of that feeling and they start acting out in ways to get rid of it. But the problem is they often act out in ways that make situations worse. Like? Cutting. Hmm texting someone 150 times, screaming and yelling and lashing out at someone being litigious, trying to kill themselves, threatening to kill themselves. Would you say someone who's a BPD is more likely to be litigious? I think they're certainly more likely to make threats of, I mean, I've certainly been threatened. Yeah, no, I imagine if you're running, (laughs) if you're running institutes that treat this, I imagine you've been threatened. Oh yeah, go on my Yelp page. I mean, I can't imagine your Yelp page because you're going to get yeah. someone who's going to create five reviews. And yeah, I mean, for every good review, there's probably like three really horrific ones. I actually don't even look at it anymore. It's traumatizing. But I think we've had one person that that did follow through and then it didn't, nothing came of it. But I definitely think they're more likely to make threats because, you know, oftentimes I think where they go is like, I need to make this right. And so the way I'm going to make it right is by getting back at you. Mm. So when we're working with them, we're really trying to teach them that actually what you want to do is really like tolerate that and try to work through it with the person instead of trying to level them or go after their, you know, livelihood. And and when you say people falsely diagnose themselves as this, what is the typical thing you see and why they think they're borderline? I mean, I haven't watched a lot of the TikTok stuff, but I've like, I'll have people come in and they'll say like, oh, I've been watching these TikTok videos and I think I'm borderline because, you know, when my boyfriend does this, I get really jealous or, you know, I cut myself when I was a kid and now I think I have borderline or no one likes me and I think I have borderline personality disorder. And usually what it is, is kind of what you said. Everyone has borderline traits. We all have narcissistic traits, borderline traits, histrionic traits. Everyone has those traits. And so it's not often the full-blown disorder. Because mm. when you see people with full, the full-blown disorder, it's showing up all over the place usually. Right. It's showing up at work. It's showing up with friends. It's it's creating so much unmanageability in their lives. Mm. It's a really painful way to go through life. And, and does someone who's borderline, do they find it a relief once they get the diagnosis, do you find? Or- yeah. Yeah. I have found that. I think a lot of clinicians, what I've found is a lot of clinicians are really scared to tell people that they have BPD or they say like, oh, you have borderline. I can't treat you. Because when I was in school, I remember they said, you know, there's only room for one borderline in your practice. And, you know, if you get a borderline, refer them out. So oftentimes they're bounced around or clinicians don't just tell them. And I have found when we finally tell people you have borderline personality disorder and here's this treatment that is the gold standard for it. People are like, oh my God, thank God. 
Mm. And I finally, because once you know, it's like, okay, well, here's what you do. It's not this horrible. And is it more common in women or men, do you find? I think it's diagnosed more often in women because women are, I don't know, I could go on a whole sort of rant about the sexism of BPD, I think. But I think because women tend to display emotions a little more outwardly than men, Mm. women are diagnosed more often. But I think a lot of men have it. It's just, it shows up in different ways. In men, it may be labeled often as narcissism. It is often labeled as narcissism or I think depression because when I feel like the, the male borderlines that we've treated it shows up as like more suicidality and intense depression and irritability and a withdrawal mm. and sort of like a cutting off of a, of relationships with people and avoiding emotions and avoiding that. Whereas with women, it shows up sort of more loudly and outward. And what and what happens for someone who is raised with a parent who, let's say, is borderline and untreated? How how is that for the person as they grow up? I mean, it can be horrible, right? Okay. So, I mean, if you think about, if you have, say, a mom that's borderline who, if she was on the more intense end of the spectrum and you have a child in that house, first of all, what's being modeled for them, right, is that, like, out-of-control emotions are okay and, mm. you know, this is what this is how we handle things when we get mad. I have a lot of patients who had borderline parents and then they engage in that behavior because that's what was modeled for them and also what was reinforced in their environment at home. Because if mom is BPD and then dad is enabling mom's behavior by not setting boundaries or doing everything she wants, then a child is looking at that and learning that, oh, okay, well, if I threaten, I get my way. If I scream and yell. And I also think it's really scary because if you're growing up in a volatile environment, you're not getting your needs met. And you're sort of like trying to exist around the parent. You know, it's like having an alcoholic parent. What do you do to survive? Right. Yeah. So so what is when you say the golden seal for for treatment for this? And and I've heard people say use the term it burns out. Like some people are borderline, but it burns out and they're no longer borderline. And it used that they use that term a lot many years ago. I used to hear it. Now maybe that's not where it's at today. I think people well, what I usually say is you do see people grow out of it because grow out of it. Okay. What people what I've seen happen is oftentimes people will get into their 30s and then what happens is nobody wants to be around them. Right. Right? And so the ones who have more insight are sometimes able to be like, "Okay, I I need to change things." So I do think you see people age out of it and you often see people diagnosed with it in their 20s, you know, in mm. their late teens and 20s. Where I also think sometimes that's hard because it's like, "Well, Lots of people act borderline when they're 16 years old or they're 18 or 21. But you do see people grow out of it. That happens. It doesn't happen for everyone. I mean, we treat people that are in their 60s and 70s that are still. I think it really depends on the environment. So in it, the like the example I just gave you, well, the environment is sending a message to the person that like, we don't want to be around you. Mm-hmm. But it often doesn't go into remission, I think, if you're married to someone that enables you uh, or you have friends that enable you or family that enables your behavior. Then that's where it can follow you. Do, do you think people have been studying resentment a lot lately? Yeah. Just overall, like, you know, what is it? Why do we have it? Why is it so prevalent? Mm-hmm. When does it pop up? How do you treat it? How does... And, and I'm wondering if someone is left untreated who's borderline, do you think that they carry a lot of resentment? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a big part of it. It's The question is, is, is that in DBT, we're always looking at, is the resentment valid? Is it justified? Mm. 
Right. I actually think a lot of times there's a lot of DBT that mirrors 12 step. I've often wondered if Linehan was in recovery. Right. Yeah. Because she does focus a lot on, you know, sort of like, well, okay, if you're still mad at this person, let's look at whether or not it's justified. And if it's Yeah, not, give me the framework you know, of, of kind of DBT? Work. Yeah, DBT. So DBT was developed in 89 by Marsha Linehan, who was a brilliant woman who actually had borderline personality disorder. And she was in and out of hospitals. She was in a hospital for four years at one point. And she kind of came out and decided I'm going to be a psychologist and I am going to create something to treat borderline personality disorder. And she took everything that she didn't like about the treatments she got and she created DBT because what she felt like was that therapists were incredibly invalidating and that Mm. when someone is emotionally dysregulated, what they really need is they need to understand that their feelings are valid even if their behavior isn't. And so she really felt like just plain CBT was telling her that your thoughts are the problem. And if you change your thoughts, then your behavior will follow. And so her hypothesis was, I can't change my thoughts because they're just sensations of my brain. I don't have control over the thoughts that come into my head. But what I do have control over is how I react to them. So the framework of DBT is teaching people skills in mindfulness. And by mindfulness, we don't mean like Zen meditation. We really mean being aware of what's going on in your environment in the moment and being present. So I'm not thinking about what happened two days ago. I'm not worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm staying in the present. And I'm also mindful of my reactions and what's going on in my body. So if if my boss walks by and doesn't say hi to me, I can go like, oh, I'm really mindful that that that's making me really anxious. I feel like my boss is mad at me. And then skills in emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. So a big part of it is didactic where we're teaching them these skills. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of it is having them track their behavior and their feelings and their emotions on a diary card every day. So when they come into session, we can look and go, oh my gosh, what happened on Tuesday? It looks like you got into a huge fight with your husband. You cut yourself, you threatened to kill yourself. And then what we do is like, on a meta level, just go through everything that happened that day and how they could have used skills. So in the first stage of DBT, we're really focused on behavioral change. Mm. After they have a foundation of skills and they're able to sort of shift their behavior and tolerate distress, we move into emotional experiencing and trauma work. So DBT kind of flipped it, where a lot of therapists, you go in and you just start your trauma work. But with people who are emotionally dysregulated, they have to have a foundation of being able to tolerate distress or a trauma work can make them worse. So we don't do that until usually like month seven to nine in DBT. That's so it's a long-term work. treatment in the sense that it is. takes how long typically? So it's an initial six-month commitment in our program. If you go to Linehan's program at the University of Washington, it's a year. So we have people commit to six months. That gets you through the skills one time. Most of our clients stay in our program 12 to 18 months. But it's actually, we look at it as short-term therapy, right? Because- It's psychoanalysis. We were coming five days a week for nine years. So in DBT, the whole goal is to get them out of therapy. Right. We want them to come in, learn the skills, go live your life. Like we don't, we don't want you to be dependent. How important is group process with someone getting to the other side of this versus someone who just sees someone one-on-one in your opinion? I mean, it's not DBT if you're not going to skills groups. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's not DBT if you're not doing. So there's four things that and this is really important for anyone out there who thinks they're seeing a DBT therapist. Um, They have to be trained in DBT. 
You have to be doing a diary card. You have to be attending a skills group led by two skills group leaders that are not your individual therapist. So they have to be working on a DBT team and the therapists need to offer 24-7 access uh, for skills coaching. So our clients have 24-7 access to us when they're in crisis. They can call us at three in the morning and we will coach them through it. And and your center is is located in Calabasas and Beverly Hills. Yeah, SoCal DBT. We're in Beverly Hills and Calabasas. Mm-hmm. It's SoCal DBT. Mm-hmm. And and why did you choose? Because many therapists believe this is the most difficult <laughs> population of clients yeah. outside of like working with. I mean, and I'm not saying this to devalue anything, but outside of schizophrenia and like just very complex. Right. right? What kind of made you go? All right, this is what I'm going to do. It didn't really happen like that. It's sort of just, I was working in substance abuse. I struggled myself with substance abuse through my 20s and was sort of in and out of programs in jail and all kinds of stuff. And then got sober and became a therapist. And so I was working in substance abuse. And what really happened was I ended up with a practice at Cedars where the psychiatrists specialized in substance abuse, but I did really well with the clients who also had BPD. I just wasn't trained. And so what happened, I was more, really more psychodynamic and depth therapy, and I would do really, really well with these clients. And then we would get to the part of like, okay, well now what do you do? Now that we know why you are the way you are, what's next? And I was kind of like, oh gosh, I don't know. And so I decided to get trained in DBT. And then I also think what happens is once other clinicians sort of find out that you're willing to treat BPD, you just sort of get flooded with referrals. And then, I mean, I just found, I I really love treating them. I like, I love people with borderline personality disorder. I think it's really misunderstood. And like I've said four times over pathologized and they're often like really, really great people who are just reacting to their trauma. And so I think I also just felt like that was why I wanted to do it because I felt like they didn't get Good treatment. Was it a game changer when you got formal DBT training? Yeah, that was sort of a game changer. It changed everything because I I went and and you just kind of go like, oh, okay. Because I also think when people are yelling or screaming or out of control, your normal impulse is to be like, calm down. Like you're overreacting. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And once I sort of learned about, oh, well, no, they're not overreacting because to them, this is like a third degree burn. And what you have to do is validate and go, oh my God, you're really hurting right now. Like, let me help you. You know, I get that you're hurting and you can't yell at me. It was a total game changer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And then I just was like, I want to do it. And then it kind of just blew up into (laughs) into this thing. Yeah. How many therapists do you have working for you now? There's 10 of us. Wow. Yeah. 10 of us, six offices, 10 of us, and kind of still expanding. So we'll see where it goes. And, and this idea when you also said you specialize in borderline personality and people with suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. when do you determine someone truly is suicidal versus they have an idea around it? What I usually ask people is, are you in so much pain that you wish you were dead or are you actually wanting to kill yourself? And oftentimes when you say that to people, they kind of stop and go, you know, oh, well, no, I mean, I'm not actually going to kill myself. But to me, it's obviously like means intent motive. If someone is stockpiling pills at home or if someone, Mm. you know, starts, usually there's like this, I think, shift when someone starts thinking people will be better off without them um, when they haven't said that previously. Um, Mm. Oftentimes you'll see what I get really worried is when someone is acutely suicidal and then they all of a sudden get better. 
because mm. that's usually that's usually an indication that they're they've made a plan in there and they're things. playing the game. So yeah, if I see people all of a sudden get better, that really worries me. And that's usually when we'll consider a higher level of care for people. Got it. Yeah. And is that difficult to find? It's difficult to find because of cost. Often it's unreal, right? It's unreal, like, right? Yeah, they're out there, but like, not many people have ninety thousand dollars a month to go to, you know. McLean Hospital for 90 days. Right. Or, or their like two-week assessment that's I think it's like four thousand a day or something. I yeah, it's, it's wild. You know, like and, and that's it's just a great the assessment. Treatment. Yeah. Right. I mean McLean is like it, it's amazing, but if you don't have, you know, the resources. So it it can often be hard. And also when we're trying to find inpatient treatment for somebody with BPD, we have to make sure it's a place that understands it. Right. So I think doesn't have just like one therapist who specializes in it. Right. Or they don't just say like we run or we do DBT and it's just a DBT skills group. Right. Um, and it has to be people who, so it does get challenging. And oftentimes also like with BPD, what you see and with people who are acutely suicidal research actually shows that suicide, completed suicide is highest when they leave treatment. Mm. So in DBT, we actually really try to avoid hospitalization and we really try to avoid sending people to a higher level of care because it's easy when you're in a bubble. Yeah. Or you feel like a failure when you get out and it's a bigger cliff to fall down. Exactly. Because you feel like no one's there and mm-hmm. nothing matters and just kind of swimming in your stinking thinking. But that's where, you know, and then you need the money for IOP and case management and all of that thing, those things, because I'm sure you know, I mean, Residential is not enough most no. of the time. No, and and it's interesting because research has shown that residential doesn't have higher success rates than outpatient. It's all this kind of like media driven facade. I mean, I I think it's interesting too this whole push for online therapy, right? You see all these ads, and even some of these companies have offered to pay me big money to just put them on the podcast and post about them a few times. And I didn't, a lot of people do it a lot and we see them. I mean, you see the commercials. The Instagram oh, I posts. hear the commercials on everyone. And it's, un- it's unreal because it's like, especially it's almost like there's no, Hey, here's what's not appropriate for us. Or let's find you the better option. Like how, you know, and a lot of people who are really struggling need the right level of care. And it just feels pretty confusing and probably pretty frustrating for a lot of people who are borderline, especially because, you know, how are they going to do well by doing a virtual hour session once a week? They're Uh, not, not, right? No. And I mean, yeah, I can't tell you how many people call and are just like, I don't know what to do. I can't afford it. And they can't afford our program, right? And so we do have sliding scale spots. Every one of our therapists has two sliding scale spots. Groups are already running. So if you want to do group for, you know, 20 bucks or for free, I'm happy to do that. Um, Are they in person, online? We have both. Oh, cool. Obviously, I really prefer prefer that people come in person now. And especially I feel like with this sort of, when you're treating something this complex, like I want to see somebody face-to-face. I want to know how they're doing. I just, there's so much that gets lost over. How do you determine if a therapist, you know, I have therapists who work here at CAST as well. And how do you determine when someone's uh, needing to grow more and evolve versus they're just not going to get it? The therapist? Yeah. Ooh. Because you're supervising therapists and it's a numbers game. You're going to end up with people where you're like, oof. Yeah, you do. I've I've had it happen. I mean, for me, it's usually I can tell by their retention rate. Like if they're getting clients over and over that are like, "Mm, 
no, I don't like this. It's not working. Usually that, I think, I I feel like you can tell just by sitting in a room with a therapist and talking to them whether they're clinically savvy. But but, but you've hired, but but I'm sure you've hired people thinking they're clinically savvy. I haven't. It's you, been a disaster. <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's really yeah. difficult because they're seeing patients. These are people with abandonment issues. I mean, typically, some of them will really bond. I've had some crazy experience. I mean, I've had cast now for 17 years, right? Yeah. And I started in my apartment seeing clients for free. And it just, okay. it kept evolving. So it's like our third location. So I've had a lot of therapists work here. I've had the, they're the best therapists in the world, you know, <laughs> special trained and done some really inappropriate things. I've had therapists who have gotten enamored by celebrity. I had a therapist who I've worked. I've had that happen too. It's unreal. It's frustrating it's, because you yeah. can't really do anything. They're just people too. I mean. I know. <laughs> It's always gonna. I'm like, just I had, I'll tell you this story. I had the, I had a therapist who worked here. It sounds like I'm I'm not resentful it over anymore. But basically, a, a, a client of ours got married in another country. Oh, and it was a big wedding. And the therapist said, "I want to go." Uh, and I said, "They they really want me to go." And I, I this is when I, I started writing books and going on TV. So I kind of like handed over a lot of these cases and you know, kind of supervised from afar and, and I'm not a therapist. I'm mm -hmm. more case management, mm -hmm. working with talent and creative and companioning too. Didn't you do a lot of companioning? I had companions for yeah. me, but yeah. kind of, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was like, I would help get people in a spot where then they could have their own team and kind of reboot it. And, awesome. and I had this therapist who worked for me who said, I really want to go uh, to this wedding. And I thought in my mind, I thought, oh, this therapist is so proud of their client. Maybe the client is really struggling. And it, it was in another country. Okay. And then the therapist goes, I said, okay, but you know, don't bring your uh, husband to the wedding, right? He's, he's not going, no, he was going to go. I said, no, 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 no. You can't, that's not really appropriate to bring your Husband, you just want to dip in and out behind this. I thought you wanted to like help there your patient. Yeah, I mean. I go to the wedding, the opening night, and I didn't even want to go to this wedding. I literally didn't even want to go to this wedding. It was just, I kind of felt like I had to go to this wedding because there was a long history. And I walk down the stairs and I see her and her husband drinking, hiding behind a tree when they see me. And yeah, no. it was just like I couldn't I couldn't believe how you know, celebrity's such a weird thing. It's you know? so weird being a therapist in LA. And especially when you start I mean, I think it probably happens for a lot of people, but when you start getting those kinds of referrals and things like that, it is really and I've I've had that too with therapists that are like, I want to you know, I want to treat that person. Can I treat that person? Or, you know, hey, they invited me to their movie premiere opening. Like, can I go? And to me, the answer is always no. No. I mean, if you want to go to a, a wedding by yourself and go to the wedding and then leave and say, hi, I was here. I saw you get married. I, I think that might be appropriate. Yeah, the, ther the therapist quit a week before the wedding. Oh, really? Well. I mean, it's crazy to yeah, me. Yeah, people just get... They get, I feel like they lose their judgment yeah. in some ways and they get really starry eyed around high profile people. And then I actually think it's like, that's so bad for the patient. 
Yeah, whether they're celebrity so bad. or not, because they're so not bad. getting they're not getting good treatment. At well, that and point. and it's favoring clients over other clients. It's just the whole thing to me is just morphed in a really strange package. But for some reason, there's a reputation, at least in Hollywood, that there's a lot of borderline and narcissistic <laughs> talent that in order to be so charming and charismatic and theatrical and what do you think of that all that I mean language? I think that there's some truth to that you do yeah I think it takes a really certain kind of personality to get into acting and things like that where it's really interesting to me where you're if you think about trying to be an actor and you're experiencing rejection all the time um mm. I, and I also think it takes a really certain kind of personality to like go after fame. Yeah. You know, to be like, that's what I want. Cause to me, it sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. To not have any privacy. And I don't know. It, it doesn't, it doesn't look that great to me. <laughs> yeah. It, I think, I think it's interesting because a characteristic, at least that I've heard with people who have BPD, is they can be incredibly charming. They are. And, mm -hmm. and steal the energy in a room or take the energy out. Mm hmm. That's true. It's true. They're incredibly insightful too. Um, it's one of the things I like about them because they usually have a history of trauma. So they're a little bit hypervigilant. And so I often have patients who are like, why are you mad at me right now? Or like, what's going on with you? You seem anxious. And I'm like, how did you know that, <laughs> that and, I, and I had think, a fight with my husband this morning or something? But when you talk about trauma, are you talking about like a series of small T traumas or like one event? Both. Okay. You know, I think like traumatic invalidation growing up, even if you just have parents who kind of ignore you or who aren't involved, isn't yeah. to some people like a big T trauma. But if you're a kid who never got validated and never got married and no one ever showed you how to be in relationships or how to manage your emotions and you were punished for having emotions, you know, or told you were too much or things like that, I think all those little T traumas sort of stack into a big T. Mm -hmm. And then you have someone who just doesn't know how to regulate. How do you turn off your brilliance of, you're clear, you're very smart. Oh, thank you. you. You deal with very complex patients. You have to be very intuitive. You have to set boundaries. Yeah. How do you shift out of that into your personal life? <laughs> um, I mean, I'm on call 24 seven. Right. <laughs> That's I was just thinking, I wonder what my husband would say. It's really hard. It's really, really hard. I actually think I just went through some health stuff in the past couple months and I sort of had kind of like an awakening where I was like, okay, I need to, I need to really like create a boundary. I have a three-year-old and I, so now what I do um, since January is like, I've told every one of my patients, like, these are my new skills coaching hours. Like if you have something happen after 11 PM, I'm not going to answer my phone anymore. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to either call 911 or call one of our other therapists or, you know, I will let clients know like I'm going on vacation and it's vacation. I'm not skills coaching, but it's really hard. It bleeds into a lot of my life because, you know, that's what I've committed to is that. I'll well, how do you walk that fine line between knowing if you're being codependent and appropriate? Right. Like, like I always know it if I'm trying to fix things for them. Mm. Like if I really feel like it's a Saturday and I'm with my daughter and a client is in crisis and I'm like, no, I have to fix this because I'm really worried that they can't handle it on their own. That's when I really feel like I have to take a step back because it's not my job. My mm. job is to sort of give them the tools and let them go handle it. It's not to fix things for them. And I can really easily get into that fixing mode. Yeah. Of like just do this and like, it's going to be okay. And no, I'll get on the phone with you. Do you need a session tomorrow? Even though it's my day off, things like that. That's when I start going, okay, Suzanne, like you have to, 
there's like a little bit of codependency going on and you need to just let this person, they're an adult and they can handle it. What do you think your husband would say? (laughs) I think he would say she works 24 hours a day and she needs to stop. Got it. It's out of control. You seem fresh though. You don't seem burnt out at all. You got (laughs) nails done. You got jewelry like on fire, you know? Thanks. I wish we did video. (laughs) I would look like father time over here and she would just have the camera on her the entire time, but- You know, that's when, when, when would you know that's like, what percent of the percentage of the people that call you just aren't appropriate? Like they come in, they do a session and you're like, nah, you're not really borderline enough. I mean, it's got to, <laughs> we do, that does happen. I mean, but we, we don't just do DBT. So a lot of times people will come in and we'll yeah. assess them and we're like, you don't need the comprehensive program. Yeah. You can do talk therapy with one of us and we'll, it's like DBT informed where we'll do talk therapy from a DBT lens and teach you skills one-on-one, but you don't need access to phone coaching. And, you know, you don't, it doesn't really sound like you're going to be in crises. You're going to be in crisis or you need to make this six month commitment. And so, and we also do CBT and act and psychodynamic. I mean, every one of my therapists also has a private practice where they specialize in different things. So we do that and DBT, but that actually happens a lot where people will call and I'm like, I don't think you actually need this. Really? Yeah. And also, why why are you going to make the time commitment and spend all this money on a treatment that you don't need? When but it is interesting because I think the, the DBT format and the skills, it's kind of like recovery in the sense that it, it would help everyone. It does, yeah. Like you look at politicians today and you're like, they all need DBT training because it would, <laughs> it would be, everyone does, right? And it really seems like it universally, even in schools, would be incredibly helpful for people as a curriculum. There you know? is a woman that's doing that. Her name really? is yeah, Liz Dexter, Liz Dexter Maza. She worked under Linehan, and now she has a program. It's called DBT in Schools. And they're trying to get DBT curriculum into elementary schools around the country, which I think is great. I teach my three-year-old I do skills with. Let's use your stop skill. You know, what are you feeling? Right. You know, I know that you're mad, but it's not okay to hit when you're mad. <laughs> you Have know? you thought about writing a book or anything like that? I've thought about a lot of different things. I just, then I, that's when I get really overwhelmed. I don't know when yeah, I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's too much time commitment and all that. Yeah, I have a real problem with, I think, like most people that run programs are not seeing 30, 40 clients a week. They're running the program and being able to do things. And I've had a really hard time separating separating and pulling away from the clinical piece because that's the part I love, sitting with clients. It's yeah. not being an administrator. So I'm trying to work on that in therapy. <laughs> you go like, to therapy yourself? Yeah, I'm in therapy every week. Yeah. How did you find a therapist that would be good for you? I found her through referrals. Um, her name is Elizabeth Kariakos. I'll just plug her. She's in Encino, California, and she's amazing. I I went through a few therapists. I had a great therapist named Greg Henderson who actually passed away while I was seeing him. Uh-huh. And then after that, I was sort of just on the hunt. And so I just saw a few people, and then I met Elizabeth, and I've been seeing her for years now. She's great. She's amazing. Amazing. She's amazing. I think everyone that's a therapist needs to be in therapy. Do you do it on the phone or do you go in person? In person. In person. So you drive out, you make the commitment and, and once a week? Yep. Once a week. Yeah. I have to get her number. I got to see someone once a week. I was seeing someone last year, but the problem was it was all virtual. I don't like that. Me neither. It's just, and you know what's, I'm not, this is just like a pet peeve of mine in this new era is therapists are keeping the same rate for their virtual, even though they're not having an office anymore. So I'm like, and they're just taking advantage of the luxury of uh, COVID where I'm like, you're not really doing what's best for the patient because some people need to come in. Like, 
they've been trapped in their house. They've been isolated. They don't have relationships and friendships. They need to come in the office. I mean, I agree. That's why even our groups, we have one group that went back in person because I I just was like, you guys, the whole point of group is for like interpersonal yeah. connection. And we when we pre-COVID, they were friends and they'd go get yogurt after a group and they yeah. bonded. And that doesn't happen on Zoom. And it's really interesting the pushback we've gotten from the patients I about know. going in person because I'm trying to take another group in person. And we just have these patients that are like, I do not want to drive there. Yeah, we we found that our, our relapse for online versus in person was twice as high. It's re- I believe Twice that. as high. Like we did a whole research study on it and we found that. So we try to utilize that to let people know they're not appropriate if we think they're really... But then you get these online apps or and all these commercials saying do therapy for fifty dollars, and I was really depressed, and I was I'm like what, uh, you know? So I, I think I think people if they and they must be in California, right, in order to go to your outpatient, even virtually, right? Yeah, for for me, I have therapists that are licensed in other states, and like I'm trying, I I'm. Getting licensed in Florida and Arizona right now. Um, and then New York is really hard, but that's another one I want to do. But for me right now, yeah, you have to be a resident of California. You yeah. can't treat you if you're out of state. Yeah, because every state has a different license and you have to literally That also it. doesn't stop a lot of therapists, but yeah. No, I know here. it doesn't. <laughs> they treat people all over the country. Yeah, and um, we've had people call from different states. And unfortunately, if we're not licensed in that state, we can't treat you. But the the rules for COVID are still waived, so it's state by state. There's mm-hmm. some states that will still let you. It just makes me nervous. I don't want to treat someone that's acutely suicidal from 2,000 miles away, and I don't know the hospital of the town they live in. I don't mm-hmm. know who to call. I don't. It just—it doesn't seem like a high quality of care. Yeah, it would be super helpful if you or one of your therapists like came to like our staffing and gave yeah. a talk because we do. That. I we know do trainings. Yeah, because I know we we constantly are having. You know, part of it is really knowing the resources that exist and the programming that's local to us, and it would be really helpful for us, and not even for us to be treating borderline because that's not what we do here. Mm-hmm. Like we'll work with outside groups who are doing something and But you must have you see it, right? We do, yeah. yeah. So like to. like what we'll have is so we have PHP and IOP. Uh-huh. And so some people will be here for 30 hours a week. Right. But uh it w- which is great for community and building and what have you, but if or outpatient, which is 10 hours. But we got a lot of people who have insurance because we're in network with a bunch of providers. Oh, that's amazing. I yeah, that. like Anthem and MHN. And yeah, we're constant. Oh, we're, that's great to know. And you see our space. It's like- Yeah, it's beautiful. It doesn't feel like we would take insurance, right? No, so, I walked in and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so <laughs> lovely. It's such a nice But that space. that's a great adjunct to what we do, let's say for someone for outpatient is if they're over with you guys, mm-hmm. because you know that way they can pay for- treatment at, at your place, user insurance here. Mm-hmm. And that just gives them a lot more structure because I know we, we pride ourselves in not taking people. We don't believe we can help, but I do think we end up in situations where we'll have therapists who are believing that they're really taking care of that, you know, like they're, they're all in, but they need to bring in you guys. Mm-hmm. Like they need, the person needs to be attending your group every week. They need to be doing this for 12 you know, 12 months or 18 months. So I think after this, let's just talk for a few because I think sure. it would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, um, But SoCal DBT Center is the brand. SoCal DBT, yes. SoCal DBT. Yeah. And I appreciate you talking to me today. You Thank know, you I, for having me. Yeah, I, I think this is really helpful. I haven't had anyone 
we probably record over 100 podcast episodes and never had someone talk about any type of personality disorder. And I, like I said, I was just looking online and YouTube videos and such. And I, I like my eyes were rolling out of my head and I showed the team here, right, Sophia? I said, that's why I want to get Suzanne. I literally played a YouTube video and you said to me, you you actually watched this whole thing. And I go, I did remember this like a few weeks ago. So I appreciate you coming here. Thank you. And I'll, uh, on the podcast, we'll put kind of your website and right. then I'll let everyone know about. So uh, for those of you who listened today, thank you. And thank you to Suzanne Wallach for joining me. And make sure to click to subscribe. And until next time, keep it magical.